It was the fall of 2020 before COVID hit, if you can think back that far. That's when the Swindle family started down the long road to ordination. That's when Amber and Cademan and Reese and Pearl, Pearl, are you paying attention? That's when all of them started paying the debt, the debt that all pastors' families pay one way or another. And I cannot thank them enough for their patience and their faith. May God make good on their investment and return it to them tenfold. To the session of Redeemer Rockwall, I cannot thank you enough for allowing me to learn and serve beside you, for encouraging me along the way, and yes, for giving me a hard time when I needed it most. And I'm looking at you, Ken Huntley. <laughs> for extending me a call for extending me a call to minister word and sacrament to the body of Christ. The same body that has served my family and I these last 12 years, no less. When God called me to ministry, I resolved to follow him to whatever end. And never in my wildest dreams did I think I would end up here serving those that we already know, those we already love. And to the saints of Redeemer Rockwall, I cannot thank you enough. I cannot thank you enough for celebrating me last Sunday. People, you would come up to me again and again and ask what it was like, um, and I was speechless. I don't know what to say other than to tell you that I think that's probably what it feels like to stroll into heaven. We thank you for the prayers that you've given our family, whether we asked it or not. We thank you for the fellowship that you've shared with us. We thank you for the meals that you've given us. We thank you for asking us how it's going, especially when it wasn't going all that well. But above all, I thank you for allowing me to minister to you along the way. You've shared your needs with me and you've made me feel like a pastor oftentimes when I felt like anything but. You've affirmed God's calling in my life. You hear that. You've shown me the will of God. And for that, I am forever grateful. So, in return for all your kindness, I'd like to give you a gift. A gift that is far greater, fortunately, than anything that I can afford. I'd like to begin my ministry by offering you a word, a word of first importance, the same word that Paul gave to the Corinthians the first time he met them, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And by scriptures, Paul means the Old Testament, books like the book of Isaiah, which spoke of one who would come one with no form or majesty, no beauty that we should desire him, one despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, from whom men would hide their faces, one who would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, one who would be pierced, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. 
one whose chastisement would actually bring us peace. And by his wounds, we would be healed. I bring you a word of first importance. That Christ was buried and raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. Scriptures like Psalm 16, which says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David wrote these words, but they speak of another, one who would not be abandoned to Sheol, one who would not see corruption. David spoke of Jesus. Jesus died and was raised on the third day. And once he was raised, Paul tells us he appeared to Cephas, the one that we usually call Peter. We don't know the details of this meeting, but maybe Jesus met with Peter to forgive him for his three denials. Maybe Jesus met with him to forgive him and encourage him. At least that's what I like to think happened. Then Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to the twelve, probably in the upper room that they met in the night before Jesus died. They had all the doors closed and locked for fear that the Jews would come bust in on them, but that did not stop Jesus from coming in to see them. And when he appeared, the disciples were afraid because they thought he was a ghost. But Jesus put their minds at ease by allowing them to examine his wounds and he asked to eat food with them, just so they knew that he was safe. Eight days later, Jesus returned to the disciples, and James was there. And James got to see his wounds and feel his wounds and believe. Then Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at once, probably on the mountain at the end of Matthew, when he gives us the Great Commission. Paul says many of these 500 were still alive at the time just in case the Corinthians wanted to check out his sources. Last of all, Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. There a light from heaven surrounded Paul in all of his rage, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus. And Paul rose blinded by the light of the risen Lord. Now, yes, I know, I know, you already know all this. So why am I telling you what you already know? The better question is, why is Paul telling the Corinthians what they already know? The same thing he told them on day one when he first met them. Well, Paul's reasoning is simple. He heaps up facts upon facts upon facts to convince the Corinthians that Jesus died and was buried and rose again. Because, you see, when it came to the resurrection, that word of first importance, the Corinthians wavered. Did you know that? They had a hard time with the resurrection. 
They had a hard time believing. They wavered between belief and unbelief. And I'd suggest that from time to time, when it comes to the resurrection, we too doubt. And from time to time, we too waver. Now, to be clear, it wasn't that the Corinthians didn't believe that Jesus died. And it wasn't that the Corinthians didn't believe that he was buried. And it wasn't necessarily that the Corinthians didn't believe that he was raised again, per se. Really, their problem was that they didn't believe in the resurrection, all caps, capital R. They just did not believe in resurrection whatsoever. They didn't believe in the idea of resurrection, you see. The prospect that people could die and come back from the dead. They had a real problem with it. Because the idea of resurrection, well, it, it stood in great contrast to the wisdom of the age. And it was offensive to the minds of the time. Many ancient thinkers were naturalists and materialists, very much like many of the thinkers in our own day. They denied the possibility of resurrection, insisting that this life was all there was. The idea that the dead could rise again and walk the earth, well, it was offensive to them. How then could Paul, with all of his great learning, profess something so foolish, so unseemly as the resurrection? So the Corinthians disbelieved. They disbelieved in the resurrection. And when they did, three things happened to them, to them and their church. First, they became divided. Second, they became depraved. And third, they became dissident. They became divided, depraved, and dissident. First, by denying the resurrection, the Corinthian church became divided. Rather than follow the wisdom of Christ crucified and resurrected, the Corinthians followed the wisdom of the age, the wisdom of men who taught a variety of things and were often at odds with one another because the wisdom of their age was divisive, just as it is in every age. Their divisive wisdom made the Corinthians divisive at heart. And check this out. Their divisiveness bled into their religion. It was almost instantaneous. Before long, the Corinthians started choosing particular apostles to follow, particular apostles instead of the one man that God raised from the dead. Contrary to the wisdom of the age, Christ's resurrection, well, it is a unifying truth, a truth beyond dispute with those with the spirit to discern spiritual things. In him, the resurrection is able to unite all people of all kinds and places have you ever noticed that? How many different kinds of people there are in Christ? It's extraordinary. No other place on the face of the earth has such a variety of people under its banner as the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is the word of first importance, the word that encompasses all things. This is why Paul says that in the risen one, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the past, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ, well, he is God's. 
Christ's resurrection is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful truth, truly. But the question is, do we believe it? Do we pursue the resurrection of Christ? Or do we pursue the wisdom of the age? Before we answer that question, perhaps we should ask ourselves, are we embarrassed by the resurrection? Are we embarrassed by the resurrection of Christ? Have we tricked ourselves into believing only the things that we can see with our own two eyes? As if the truth of the resurrection waits for our approval. But what does God say? This is what he says. The word, it is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. The word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, those who believe in him will not be put to shame. Second, the Corinthians denied the resurrection and they became depraved. That is, they became so depraved that they began to be known for doing things that not even the pagans would do. Now, how can this be? How can disbelief in a doctrine like the resurrection cause us to sin without shame? Well, it happens like this. Denying the resurrection leaves us with a sense of hopelessness. It leaves us with a sense of hopelessness. And when we become hopeless, when we begin to believe that this is all there is, that this is all there is, the holiness of God begins to seem, well, it begins to seem like a, a pointless endeavor. And just like that, our holiness gives way to temptation. And our hearts feast on the lust of our eyes and the desires of our flesh. And just like that, we forget the truth of the matter. That our bodies are not our own that we were purchased, that we were purchased with the body of Christ, that we are bought and paid for. And the day will come when God will return and raise our bodies and judge us, body and soul. And we know that day is coming and that it's coming soon. Do you know how? Because in Christ, the resurrection has already begun. He has risen, which means the final age. It's already upon us. This is why Paul says the end is near. He's not counting hours, seconds, minutes, days. He knows that it's already begun in Christ's resurrection. So he tells us, time is short. So be vigilant. Believe in the resurrected Christ and pursue newness of life in him. Third, in denying the resurrection, the Corinthians became dissident. That is, they began to live in opposition to the gospel, especially with regards to one another. 
For in living their best lives now, they began to pursue their own wants, their own freedoms, their own rights. And in seeking their own rights, they began to live life in spite of one another. They began to wrong one another. They sought to eat and drink, for tomorrow they die. And as they lived thus, they began to give offense to one another. And when they were wronged, well, they sought justice. They sought justice above all else. They sought their due. And so it is with us from time to time, even in the swindle house. We forget that in light of the glory to come, we should seek not to wrong, but to be wronged. Not to exercise our liberty, but to seek the liberation of others. To forgive as we were forgiven. To redeem as if as we were redeemed. That our neighbor might not stumble, that our neighbor might be raised to newness of life. The Corinthians denied the resurrection, and their denial threatened to undo them at every turn. But Paul's message is clear. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again, just like we say every Sunday. And Christ did all this, and he did it according to the scriptures. This was God's plan to save the world from sin and death. God chose to bear a cross of shame to come in a lowly way to lowly people. He chose to rise from the dead in a way that's contrary to the wisdom of every age. And in so doing, he became the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by man came death, and by man has come the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall we bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can the perishable inherit the imperishable. But fear not, for behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Then shall come to pass a saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your, your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory of death through Christ Jesus our Lord. Victory over death in Christ Jesus our Lord. To us, that sounds almost too good. Almost too good to be true. Because death is so familiar to us. Like a toxic friend that we'll never be rid of like an uninvited guest that takes up residence in our bodies and in the bodies of those we love and in the bodies of those we've lost. We hear the word resurrection, that word of first importance. And what do we think of? All we can think of is that we are dust 
and to dust we shall return. And it isn't just our bodies, by the way. It's not just our bodies that put up with death, is it? For we also suffer the sting of death in our souls, so much so that at times the hurt in our bodies pales in comparison to the hurt, the anguish in our souls. Such is the pain of grief and loss for those who still have the heart to feel it. And like the body, the soul collects scars, scars that will not heal this side of glory. Both our bodies and souls cry out for resurrection. We cry out along with the rest of creation. For we who have the spirit, the first fruit of the resurrection, we groan inwardly. We groan with sounds too deep for words. And in this way, we are reminded of that deepest of truths. That we are not made, brothers and sisters, we are not made to live in a fallen world. With each and every groan, we are reminded that we are made for more than death, that we are made and remade for life itself. And so we wait. We wait. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters of God. We wait eager for the redemption of our souls and our bodies. With this hope, we wait. We wait. We wait patiently for that which is not seen. And by this hope, we are saved. Redeemer, I deliver to you a word of first importance which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. And I remind you of as much, for this is the gospel that you have received. This is the gospel in which you stand. This is the gospel by which you are being saved. So hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast to the resurrection of Christ. For in him, we do not believe in vain. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, death haunts us body and soul, and we hurt and fear beyond reckoning. And yet, somehow, our hearts are glad, and we rejoice, for we dwell secure. For you will not abandon our souls to Sheol, for you did not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made known to us the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thanks be to God.